Well, good morning, Evergreen. I have been away from this place for about three weeks. I have uh, not had opportunity to be with you in a worship service for three weeks. Uh, I miss you guys. It's, uh, it's good to be back with you and good to get reconnected with you. And even this week, as I was in the building a little bit, I had opportunity to see a few of you, but uh, it's good to be with you this morning. And uh, we look forward to next week when we can uh, welcome a candidate and have that whole conversation next week. So um, good and exciting times ahead for us all. But for the last two weeks, I was able to attend a church service in Langley, BC. Our daughter and her family uh, live out in Langley, and they go to a church called Christian Life Assembly in uh, Langley. And uh, it's a Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada congregation. And uh, I love this congregation. They do a lot of great things. And I love uh, how they've integrated our family into what's going on there. And uh, just lots of good things I could say about CLA. Their worship style, of course, is a little different from ours here with the Mennonite Brethren service, but not that different. Wouldn't really shock you how, you know, the, the two services aren't that different. But then I'm the kind of guy who likes to worship in lots of different ways. I'm drawn to Pentecostal styles of worship. I'm also drawn to the Mennonite Brethren style that we've developed here. I'm also drawn to what was what I used to go to as a child with my grandparents to a kind of a high church Anglican church. And I loved it when they would march in with the cross on a pole, you know, and they would sometimes have incense and they would, you know, it was, it was weird in some ways, but it was another way of worshiping and a lot of liturgy and a lot of reading of, of uh, biblical texts and a lot, of, uh, a lot of singing of old hymns. The, Sherman, the sermons were really short, uh, but that was, you know, the way it was. So what I'm trying to tell you is I like lots of different styles of worship. And I, I suspect that many of us have experienced lots of different styles of worship in our lives. And we're going to talk about worship today. And sometimes I'm a little too analytical about worship services. I don't know about you, but I can kind of sit there critiquing the worship service. And uh, I have to guard myself that I'm not critiquing it and kind of saying, well, what have you got for me today? <laughs> I have to work hard on it and, and make sure that I'm not trying to get, have a worship service that's all about what I like when it really should be about what God likes. And so we're going to talk about a bunch of that sort of stuff as we look at some passages of Scripture together this morning because we are going to tackle this concept of worship as a spiritual discipline as something that we that has kept the church together for these 2,000 years or so uh, here uh, in the world. That, as we've said about this ancient faith, there are certain spiritual practices, there are certain spiritual disciplines that have kept the church healthy over these many years. And worship is certainly one of those. And we'll talk about what we're talking about, whether it's worship in one place or... Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look at uh, what worship is. Let's kind of define it a little bit. Worship is the human response to the divine initiative. 
Now, that's a direct quote from Celebration of Discipline. That won't surprise you that we're still following through that book a little bit. Uh, Richard Foster wrote that book in 1978. And worship is the human response to the divine initiative. So it's not about what we want. It's not about what we like. It's that God has reached out to us with his divine initiative, and we respond out of gratitude and out of what he has done for us. We'll unpack that a little bit more, but I thought it might be good to take a look at a couple of passages of scripture in uh, revelations that kind of address uh, or model for us what is worship. One day, we will be in heaven with God the Father, uh, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and we will worship together in that context. So we get a little preview of that in some of the texts in Revelation. So I thought it might be healthy for us to look at some of these together. In Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, we read that the angels will sing this or say this at that time. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne. Again, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. Again, in Revelation chapter 5, 11 through 14, we see another little glimpse into worship in heaven. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And they sang, blessing and honor, glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. Now, I will say that there is a lot of mystery in those passages for me. There's a lot that I don't understand. There's a lot I, I'm, I'm still wrestling with trying to understand. Who are these 24 elders? And what, are, what is an angel in this context? What do they look like? But I don't get too worried about a bunch of this. What I love seeing is that there, this is a picture of worship in heaven. And I love the part where it talks about all of God's creatures singing and praising God. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang blessing and honor, glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne. That's, that's quite a good picture I can get a hold of. Every creature under the, the sky, every creature in the ocean, every creature, yes, even the jellyfish, 
we'll sing praises to God. Uh, I heard about a family that uh, had some, some dealings with jellyfish and having to avoid them so they didn't get stung by them. Yes, the jellyfish will be praising God. And all the creepy crawlies in the ocean and under uh, logs will be praising God, it sounds like to me. Anyway, there's a picture of worship in heaven for us. Um, even, and, and a lot of other things become unimportant in this worship, it would seem. These 24 elders, whoever they are, they take off these golden crowns and lay them down at God's feet. Crowns don't matter in heaven. Gold doesn't matter in heaven. Doesn't matter what you've done on earth. Doesn't matter what you've got that you tried to bring with you. You'll be able, you'll just cast it down in front of God and none of it matters because God is what matters in that moment. Richard Foster goes on to say that to worship is to experience reality and to touch life. It is to know, to feel, to experience the resurrected Christ in the midst of the gathered community. It is breaking into the Shekinah glory of God, or better yet, being invaded by the Shekinah glory of God. When we worship, we get to touch reality. We get to experience that reality that is already there in heaven, that God and his creation are honored in heaven continuously. And we get to worship and join into that worship that is going on in heaven. And we get invaded by that same Holy Spirit that allows us to worship. Sometimes we have a tendency to come to our worship services and to our worship experiences. And we, we may not really realize what we're doing. We may not realize the the position we are in. I love what Annie Dillard says in her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. She's obviously making a reference to the fact that if we don't praise God, the stones will cry out, as the Bible tells us. But Annie Dillard, in, in one of her writings, says, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? She's saying, when we come into the presence of God in our worship services, we sometimes come kind of unprepared. Or she says, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? She's a little sharp with some of her words. The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. I think she's thinking of a different time than when women used to wear hats to church, but it is madness to wear ladies' stray hat, straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. <laughs> Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For... The sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. She's saying when we come into the presence of God, we need to be prepared for God to speak, 
We need to be prepared that we might experience God in his presence. I like that image of us being lashed to the chairs, waiting expectantly for God to speak to us and maybe mess up our lives. We come expectantly that God is here with us and that we will hear from him. I I think she's kind of right that we need to take it a little bit more seriously sometimes. I think these days we're all questioning a little bit more and we're all asking these questions about worship than we maybe did a few years ago. We've now had the experience of worshiping with online streaming protocols. We've learned what it's like to worship in our homes with our families. We've also realized the challenge of singing along in our homes while somebody where while a church service is worshiping and they're singing together there and we try and join them but it's hard when you're at home and we know these challenges we're glad for live stream and we're glad that we can do that sort of thing in our time but we know that it's challenging for us to figure that out and so it's it's caused us to ask lots of questions about what is worship and how do we worship in these times well I'm going to try and talk through a number of different things that um, we might understand from God's word about worship. I'm going to actually tackle about four different passages of scripture here yet. So hang on to your crash helmets and, hang, and maybe strap yourselves into the chairs. But I encourage you maybe to take a look at these passages of scripture on your own time. I can always give you notes after the fact, or you can take notes in the service, put them in your phone or whatever. But we're going to look at four different passages of scripture, make four different points, and then we'll just kind of see what, where that leads us in our understanding of worship. First thing I want to talk about is found in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, and we're going to talk about the sincerity of worship. Amos 5, 21 through 24 says, and God's words are strong here. He says, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice and endless river of righteous living. Some translations talk about let justice roll. You may have heard that referred to like that before. An endless river of righteous living. Amos, the prophet here, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, was sent to the people of Israel, the people who will later become the Samaritan people in the New Testament times. But in the Old Testament times, they were uh, the, the Israel people in the north, the people of Israel in the north. And he condemns their worship because it is insincere and disconnected from justice. We see him painting a picture of people who go to worship assemblies and go through rituals, but their hearts are far from God. People are oppressed and dying among them, and they choose to worship without paying attention to the needs of the people around them. 
So God wants them to be changed by their worship, but they're just going through the motions. Daniel Carroll, in a recent uh, article in Christianity Today, quotes this passage from Amos, and then he says this about the passage. He says, Worship, social concerns, and political realities are inescapably woven together. More importantly, what is at stake in worship is the very person of God. The Lord... Our God is involved in every dimension of human existence. And the picture of God presented in worship must reflect this. It must present God as he truly is. Worship must bring prayer, confession, lament, and praise to this God and shape a people to reflect this God. Letting justice roll down means denouncing religious activities unconcerned about injustice or celebratory rituals oblivious to human need or a faith sold out to political ideology. If worship, however well-intentioned, gets God wrong, it will produce misguided people and be judged. Amos is telling us that we must take worship seriously. It affects every aspect of our church life. It affects every aspect of our culture. And our worship will influence who we are as a people and what we care about. It'll influence us and make us more like our God who is concerned with justice. And it will send us out into the world prepared to do something about injustice in our world. Worship must be sincere It must represent God. It must be just. One thing we learn, and that's from Amos. Let's take a look at another passage of scripture. Uh, In John chapter 4, we're going to talk about the location of worship. Now, John chapter 4, you may or may not remember, is a lengthy chapter that deals with Jesus' interaction with a woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And There's a lot of things we can learn from that passage of scripture. And we turn to John chapter four for a lot of different things that we learn about Jesus, about his relationship with the Samaritans, about his relationship and and who he is as the Messiah. Uh, But today I want to just focus in on what it has to say about worship. Uh, I think it has something to speak into our worship and to what goes on in our world. Um, This Samaria that Jesus finds himself in, of course, is the same group of people in a sense, but about 700 years removed. They were the people of Israel that Amos went to, and now they are the Samaritan people that Jesus is going to. And the Samaritan woman has some questions about worship. And by this time, the Jewish people worshipped God in Judah and in Jerusalem, and the Samaritan people worshipped God at Mount Gerizim in the north. They were really two nations by this time, and they each had their own kind of separate worship. They worshipped the same God, but they worshipped in different ways and at different locations. And so the woman is curious about worship and says to this Jewish rabbi, Jesus, so tell me, why is it that you, G- Jews, <clears throat> that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? 
while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped. So we should have that scripture could just come up for people so you can read along here. So tell me, why is it that Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? While we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. So this, I believe this speaks into our worship today. We don't have the same kind of worship as they had at that time. You see, this, their worship was very tied to their state. There was no separation of church and state, no separation of the nation from their worship. So the Jews, they had their form of worship that happened in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans had their form of worship that happened in Mount Gerizim. It's like if we had a national church in Canada and we had to go to Ottawa to worship. I thought I might get a bit of a reaction for that one. <laughs> Who wants to go to Ottawa to worship? But neither uh, is it the same in that uh, we don't have to go any place to specifically worship. Jesus is saying that we worship in spirit and in truth and that we worship in a fashion that doesn't require a specific location. It doesn't even require that we're in the building at Evergreen Heights Church. <laughs> we love that we can come here and worship together, but we can worship beyond this place. We can worship in other places at other times. You might be out walking your dog in the community and you might decide that that's a moment for you to worship God. You might be thankful for the fact that you can walk in your community. You might be thankful that you live in a peaceful community and it might turn that time into a time of worship. Yeah, I think you can worship with a dog present. It might turn into a time of worship when you're out camping or at a cabin or you're experiencing the ocean, or you're experiencing a lake or you're experiencing the mountains and you're just amazed at God's creation and your soul might rise up in worship. That's worship in spirit and in truth. It might happen that you're walking through your community and you witness somebody who has much less than you have and you're you're struck with how greatly God has blessed you and you worship God because of how he's blessed you and you, it makes you think about how you will help others who have less than you have. You might worship at your dinner table when you look around the table and thank God for everyone that's gathered around your table and for the roof over your head and for the food on your plate. We have a little two-year-old grandson 
in uh, Langley, BC, that is just learning how to pray at the supper table. And he looks around the table at that meal. And even if somebody else is praying and asking the blessing on the meal, he's saying this very quietly. He looks around the the table and he kind of says his representation of their names. And he's thanking God for each of those people at the table. He can't even say the names of his sisters well enough for us to totally recognize them. But he's thanking God for everybody around the table. Now that's worship. That's really pure worship in that little guy. And that's how pure children's worship can be. So worship can happen like that. It can happen just any place that we happen to be. Worship is spirit and truth, and it can be any place and any time. The location of worship is not restricted to Jerusalem, Mount Gerizim, Ottawa, Evergreen Heights Church Building. Jesus calls us to worship in spirit and truth and calls us to worship wherever and whenever we are. So we've established that worship needs to be sincere. It, uh, it needs to be, uh, oh, this is the second one. Here we go. So we've talked about the location of worship and now we're gonna go on to the goal of worship. Romans chapter 12, I believe, speaks a little bit to the goal of worship. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 may be familiar to you. And there we read, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Again, there's that recognition of God has done something for us. It's his initiative. And and the apostle is writing, Now, because of that, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So the way that we worship God is that we give ourselves back to God. God has, is the initiator. God is the one who has rescued us, has saved us. God, while we didn't even know about God, while we didn't care about God, while we were yet sinners, it'll say in another place in Romans, God reached out to us and provided salvation. He provided creation before that. He provided us with everything we have. It was his initiative that brought upon where we are today. And so in return, we offer back our lives as a living sacrifice to him. But it also says in that passage that our lives are transformed by that kind of worship. We don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but we let God transform us into new persons by allowing him to change the way we think. Then we will learn God's will for us and what is good and pleasing and perfect. That is the goal of worship. True worship is transformative. We are changed by our act of worship. 
So whether it's a Sunday morning gathering while we're, where we're waiting for God to speak to us, or if it's that walk that you have in the morning, or the, the, maybe it's a, a run that you go out on, or a, 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 you go riding on your bike or something like that, any of those moments could be a moment when you worship and are transformed by God in that moment of worship. If we are looking for those moments, I believe God will speak into them. If indeed we are changed, that's a good indication that we have been worshiping. Philip Yancey, who has written a number of uh, books, a number of Christian books, and uh, started out as a journalist, he has this to say about uh, worship and, um, and other things in America, he says. In America... I've noticed a consumer mentality tends to infiltrate relationships as well as commerce. Some people treat marriage partners like automobiles. Every few years, it's time to upgrade to a new model. Tell it like it is, uh, Yancey. <laughs> some Christians treat churches the same way, he says. And some even approach God with a consumer spirit. When God performs satisfactorily, that merits our worship. But when God seems distant or unresponsive, eh, why bother? But God has already reached out to us. God has already given us everything. God is not unresponsive to us. God has initiated with us. And now, because he is initiated with us, we get to give back to him, speak back to him, pray, allow our lives to be transformed by his will. That is true worship. So worship must be sincere. Worship can happen anywhere. Worship is transforming. And then lastly, I want to say to you that worship is about trusting God. The older I get, I think I spend more and more time in the New Testament, but there are still some of those passages in the Old Testament that really do grab me. And so one of my favorite ones that I tend to read over and over again is one in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It doesn't seem like a very likely spot to find a, an interesting story, I know, but 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and we'll look at verses 20 and 21 here in a minute. But there is the story of the people of Judah. And so the, at this point, this, we've got the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. But the people of Judah are under attack by the Moabite army. And the Moabites were actually a pretty um, big civiliza civilization in this time. And they had uh, a lot of influence in that area. And they had amassed a large army of, uh, of soldiers. And they were coming to get Judah. Not only had Moab assembled their own army, but they'd got a few other nations to join in on the process. And so Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the king of Jerusalem at the time, he looks at this or at the situation and knows that Moab and a large army is coming to get Judah. And he, the first thing he does is he goes to God and he worships. Here's where it ties in. Because the first thing he thinks about doing is worshiping. He doesn't 
first go and talk to his military strategists. He goes and he worships and he asks God, he says, this is a difficult situation. The text makes it clear that he knows he's in trouble. And so he goes and he worships God. And out of that time of worship, he's convinced that God is going to protect them and save them from this Moabite army. And so he comes out of his worship time and he speaks to people and he says, believe in God, believe that we will be rescued in this situation. He encourages the people to fast and worship and to prepare for battle. In fact, he then, the next thing he does is he says, okay, we've got to go out and meet this army. And so they head out to meet the army. But as they're going, he decides he should speak with the people again. And so he stops them and he says, hey, let's talk about this. How are we going to meet this Moabite army? And he says, I've got an idea. Let's put the worship team in the lead. Let's put the singers at the front of the army, in front of the warriors, in front of the the people with the swords and the spears and the shields. We're going to put the singers. Now, he did, it says here, let's, let's read what the text says here. In 2 Chronicles 20, 20, he says, Listen to me, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be able to stand firm. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. And then in verse 20 says, 21, he says, After consulting the people, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. And this is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord, his faithful love endures forever. So I was happy to see that he did consult the people. I would also be happier to know that he was one of the singers that was out in front with the singers. We don't don't know if he was or he wasn't. Now, it was common for the king to go out in front of the army, so that's a hopeful thing. But if you send the singers out in the front, I would hope you'd be out there with them, singing along with them. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? This is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. We still sing that song today. So this was a a big hit back in 700 BC or something like that. He puts the singers in front of the army. Sounds crazy. And yet God protected them from that army that day. When they get close to where the army has amassed, they discover that the army has fought amongst themselves and they've killed each other. Now, it may have been because they were from different nations trying to work together or something of that nature, but they killed each other and there was no army to fight that day. I don't, I'm not sure this is a strategy we're all, always supposed to use, <laughs> but I think it's instructive about our worship. That worship is about trusting God. That when we come into a place of worship like this, or when we're worshiping God out on our own in the wilderness, or when we're worshiping as we're walking down the street, worship is about trust. It's about trusting God. It's about saying, God, despite the circumstances of life, we're going to praise you, we're going to worship you, we're going to trust you. Hard stuff. 
I know what's going on in this congregation. I know the pains. I know people who are suffering in this congregation. I know people who are, have serious medical issues. I know some of you that have had your kids have serious medical issues. How do we trust God like that in the midst of all of this? I'm not saying this is easy stuff, folks. But we trust that God is in the midst of all these things that we face. We trust him and we worship him and we say, God, we're going to trust you once more. We're going to trust you with this life. We're going to trust you with heaven where we'll get to and we will worship you that day. We're going to trust you with all of it. And we're going to ask you to transform us into people who can trust you. We're going to ask you to transform us into people who can truly worship you and worship you in the world and help in our world. We're going to put the singers in the lead, so to speak. And we're going to worship you with all of our lives. Worship must be sincere. It must include worshiping a God who is just and desires his people to become a people of justice. Worship is something that happens anywhere and anytime. Worship changes us. Worship is the way we show our trust in God. Remember, worship is the human response to the divine initiative. And so we have been blessed by God and we respond with worship. I want to conclude today with just uh, a little bit of quiet for us to think about these things. Think about where we're at in our lives. Think about where we're at with our worship lives. We're going to take a couple of minutes. Uh, I'm going to ask the uh, worship team to come back up on stage and they can tune their instruments and tune their voices and be prepared to lead us in another song at the end here. Um, we can... We can just uh, listen quietly and to what God might have to say to us as we ask a few questions of ourselves. Oftentimes we come to a worship service and we, we kind of wait to, uh, we're, we're waiting for the, the preacher to impress us or something. <laughs> and I'm going to suggest that today we're going to wait upon God to impress upon us what it is he has for us from his word here today. Let me ask a few questions as we just ask God to intervene. Ask God yourself, how could my worship become more sincere? Pause with that for a moment. How could my worship become more sincere? God, we want our worship to be sincere. Here's another question for us. How might I incorporate worship into more of my everyday life?
Ask that of God. Ask him to impress upon you. I'm going to ask him to impress upon me how I might incorporate worship more into my life. And yes, God, we want to incorporate worship more into our lives. Ask God, in what way will worship leave me changed? Or in what way will I be transformed by worship? God, I want to be transformed by worship. These people of yours want to be transformed by worship. They want to be transformed such that they accept your will in their lives. I want to be transformed so that I can accept your will in my life. And fourthly, let us ask our God, how does my worship show that I trust you, God? Does my my worship, God, show that I trust you? God, may we trust you more and more as we worship you more and more. Let's ask our worship team to lead us in another song.